So I am going to give a title to tonight's sermon, and the, ser- and the title is, and only some of you will appreciate this, Measure Twice, Cut Once. Raise your hand if you understand that. Measure twice, okay, a lot of people understand that. Measure twice, cut once. So just generally, Exodus, of course, is this story about God taking his people from the house of Pharaoh to his own house. It begins with them in slavery in Pharaoh's house, and it ends with God dwelling in his house in the midst of his people. So it's a story of him taking them from toilsome, miserable slavery to service to him, which is true freedom. And the book of Exodus is the urtext. It is the beginning. It is the origin story of the theme of liberty and freedom in our history that goes all the way back to this. All right, even in the origins of the United States of America, Exodus as a book featured very prominently. So this theme of liberty and freedom is key. But the narrative arc that I want to stress for tonight, the narrative arc is of God taking Israel from under bondage in Pharaoh's house to living with him as his people in his house. And remember last week or two weeks ago, we covered chapters 19 through 24, which are the the celebration and the detailing of the marriage covenant of God with Israel. He wanted to invite them into covenant. And all of the prophets and later writers and Jesus himself depicts this as a marriage covenant. So he begins by telling them to prepare themselves to wash for three days hence. And they gather on those three days and God himself speaks the words of the covenant to them. He speaks the words that will govern and describe their lives together. And Israel says, I do. We will. All that the Lord has said, we will do. And then God takes time to unpack what this life together will look like. The laws of God are not mere don'ts, but they're a positive description of the kind of people he wants them to be. They're a positive description of the kind of society he wants them to be together. And he unpacks that over several chapters. And again, Israel says, I do. All that the Lord says, we will do. And at the end of that section, Moses ascends to the top of the mountain and he enters into the dark cloud so that God can speak with him and give him what unfolds in our chapters from 25 to 31. And what unfolds in those chapters is all these instructions and details. And you have to admit, it's kind of bizarre. All right, if you've ever watched a movie of the Exodus, they really don't go into the details that they describe here. I I would dare a movie maker to do that. Right? Because it's like you're going in this exciting narrative where God does all these amazing things, and then it's like an Ikea manual or something like that. Right? It goes into great detail about these descriptions of this house that God wants to, to, for them to build. And notice what God says about this house. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. This is God's heart. His desire is to dwell with, to live with his people, to come close to them. And this opens up a theme that goes all the way back to the beginning of Scripture. God's persistent, relentless, gracious determination to live with his creatures. His desire was to walk with them, to be their God, for them to be in close fellowship with him. And of course, we know that in Genesis, human sin drove mankind out of the garden. And if you pay attention to the narrative of Genesis, it's not just that they're out of the garden, but as the story unfolds, they go further and further away, east and down, away from God's presence. And the further they go from God's presence, the worse it gets. 
The worst people treat one another. The worst people treat God. But God was never satisfied with that. And from day one, he has been about one thing, making it possible for his creatures to dwell with him and for him to dwell with them. So what we need to see behind all of these detailed instructions is God's passion to dwell with his people that cannot be quenched, that cannot be deterred, that God has been pursuing from Eden and will pursue all the way to New Jerusalem with unrelenting determination. Amen? But notice, if you're paying attention to to Exodus, hopefully you've read it through, we have these chapters here that are this long narration of these details of of the tabernacle and of the clothing for the priests and of all these details. And did you notice that they come twice? In chapters 25 through 31, we get these long, elaborate details. And then in chapters 35 through 40, they actually unfold and go into detail of doing all the instructions that God gave them. What intervenes is chapters 32, 31, 32, the building of the golden calf. All right, so keep that in mind as we read this, that this, we get, the, we get it twice Because God gives the instructions, and then instead of building this tabernacle for him to dwell with them, he builds, they build an idol. And Moses intercedes, and God relents, and they finally build the tabernacle. And the book ends with God moving in, with God moving into the house that they've prepared, that he almost didn't move into because the marriage was almost called off on the day of the wedding. So those move-in plans get interrupted, but God graciously decides to move in anyway. I also want to point out that this tabernacle that God has called the people to build is a return to Eden. The tabernacle is very deliberately saying, listen, what I started in Eden, I'm continuing. This is a means for Adam, who was driven out of the presence of God, to once again come back into the presence of God. And there's all kinds of hints in this text that tell us that it's about a return to Eden. There are seven speeches where God says, the Lord said to Moses. And the seventh of those speeches is about the Sabbath. Sound familiar? It corresponds to those six days of creation and the seventh day on which man and God rested. The cherubim are mentioned. Israel is to build cherubim into the tapestries along the walls and along the veil of the, of the Holy of Holies. We haven't seen cherubim until Adam and Eve were, or since Adam and Eve were driven from the garden. It's a sign that we're coming back to that very same place. The tabernacle itself is a garden. It's made of wood from what? Trees. It's decorated with fruit. And the light of the fruit of of the olive brightens the palace. It has water, just like the Garden of Eden did. It has food, just like the Garden of Eden did. And it is spoken of by scripture in exactly the same way. In Genesis 2-2, when God finished his creation work, it says, and on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And at the end of the book, in Exodus 40-33, it says, so Moses finished the work. It's almost identical language, saying that God created the universe and Israel created a house for God to dwell in. It's also a bridal house. Remember, this is the marriage covenant. With God and Israel. And this is the house that God wants to dwell in with his people. 
The language of the temple and all the furnishings of the temple, I encourage you to go read Song of Solomon. There's all kinds of similar vocabulary, speaking of fruit and fragrant incenses and beautiful work of various kinds. Imagine, if you will, with these descriptions of the tabernacle that God wants Israel to build, imagine an engaged couple planning the home that they're going to live in together. And planning all the, the items, the, the wedding registry, all the things that they're going to have here. I think we should hear something of that heart in what God is doing here. God desires his bride. He desires his people. And he desires to dwell with them. But of course we know that it is also a dangerous house. All right? Remember the cherubim. The cherubim alone are sign that you're coming into a territory that you have been banished from. To come into the presence of God is dangerous is deadly for sinful people. And all of the protocols of the tabernacle, they remind me of the protocols for dealing with electricity or for using and operating around radiation, right? It's an awareness that there's something very dangerous here. And I think we should hear all this as God, who is holy and good, lovingly condescending to prepare a safe way for his people to come into his presence. Right? It's, it's not because he wants them to be harmed. It's because he wants them to come. And he's making provisions for them to be able to come. Finally, the tabernacle that God builds is a meaningful house. Right? Every detail means something. We don't have time tonight to go into all of the ways in which there are elements of the tabernacle, of the, of the garments of the high priest that speak of something. But they all speak of something. And I encourage you to study them and study scripture and consider what those meanings may be. I just want to point out a few to whet your appetite. Notice that the tabernacle, is a, there's a graded approach to God's presence. And you can see this in various ways. In the courtyard, there's bronze. But if you go into the holy place, there's now silver with a little bit of gold. But when you get into the holy of holies, what is there? It's all gold. And that gold speaks of God's presence. So we see the ways in which it is a gradual approach into the holiness and the presence of God. It is like Mount Sinai, where there were gradual stages of approach and only Moses could go to the top. The bronze altar in the, in the outside court... It is where the offerings were burned up, and in particular, the whole burnt offering, otherwise known as the ascension offering. And this sacrifice, among other things, the most important element, is that once that animal was killed, it arose, it ascended in smoke to go into God's presence on behalf of the people. It's about coming back into God's presence. So all kinds of elements of the tabernacle speak of coming into God's presence, of going into the Holy of Holies. The lampstand... It speaks of God's presence and his teaching to his people, his word, his words to his people. Remember in Revelation that Jesus calls churches, if they don't repent, he will come and take their lampstand, right? That place of presence where he speaks to them and he speaks his teaching and his word to his people. The sea on the outside, the bronze sea where the priests had to wash before they would go into the temple. It speaks of the washing required to go into God's presence and to be a part of God's service. And finally, and maybe most importantly, what we read tonight, the Ark of the Covenant and the Mercy Seat. There's a number of things that are spoken of here, but I just want to mention a few. First of all, it's God's throne. 
The mercy seat is God's throne. It is where he says he will speak with Moses. He will speak with the people of Israel. There's the angels there because they are his servants. They are at his feet. And then it is covered by the mercy seat. And the mercy seat is where he says he will speak to them and where atonement takes place on the most important day in Israel's calendar, the day of atonement, where the blood of sacrifice is sprinkled on the mercy seat. And what's fascinating about this is there's all kinds of things we could say, but Paul describes Jesus himself as a mercy seat. He is the place where atonement takes place. And I think maybe the most profound way we see this is in the Gospel of John. When Mary comes to the tomb, when John and Peter have already gone away because they see it empty, she looks into the tomb and there are two angels sitting on the slab on which Jesus lay. The cherubim, the Ark of the Covenant, was pointing to that. Because that is where Jesus' death brought atonement. That was the Holy of Holies where God brought redemption for his people. So every element of the tabernacle speaks of something, and I want to encourage you to study it and to consider it and allow the Bible to open itself up to you and consider the many ways in which it speaks to it. But I want to talk about how the tabernacle is to be built. And the first thing is this, with willing hearts. Notice that he says, I want you to gather from the Israelites materials to build the temple. Every man whose heart moves him, it's not a tax. It's not a requirement. They give freely of their hearts. This is the most important thing, I think, about the building of the tabernacle, that it's a response to God. God passionately desires to dwell with his people. And that desire is meant to awaken in us a glad and willing heart that will give whatever we can to see that take place, to see God's desire occur. There's no force or coercion with God in the giving of these gifts. There's no force or coercion with God in us sowing our faith in him. It is with the willing hearts of his people that his tabernacle is built. Amen? And again, I can't help but think of Song of Solomon again. I am my beloved's and he is mine. His desire is for his people. And that is meant to awaken in us a desire to freely give to him whatever we need to, to see his house built. It is the reciprocating of the love of the bridegroom. So it is built with willing hearts. It is built with the materials of creation. I love the list. All right. I love the list of all the various materials that they're to give. I mean, First of all, where'd they get them? But there's tons of them. And it goes from gold and silver to skins to all kinds, to dyes. There's all kinds of things that they're offered to give. And hopefully that list sort of reminded you of things. One of the most important ways to learn to read the Bible is to go, what does this remind me of? And it reminds me, among other things, of the descriptions in Genesis when God describes the garden. You remember when it says there are four rivers and they extend out. And down this one river, there's gold, and it's really good gold. And he speaks of onyx stones and other things. It's as if all of creation is just, is just filled with all kinds of precious things that God wants his people to take and bring and beautify his house with it. All right? And I think God has delighted in history to see humanity taking the raw materials that he has made and turning them into other things, but especially into things that are suitable for a, to be a place where he would dwell. 
And I think, among other things, this speaks of God's delight in creation and his intention not to do away with creation, but to ultimately redeem it. Remember, the promise of Scripture is not that God is going to get rid of all of creation, but God is going to fulfill it. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. And the gathering of these materials to be a dwelling place, I think, speaks of that. So it's built with willing hearts. It is built with the materials of creation. It is built according to the pattern that God showed Moses. This phrase repeats multiple times in this section. Build it according to the pattern. Build it according to the pattern that I showed you on the mountain. Think of this as the blueprints. Think of this as the Uh, those blueprints by which they're supposed to go. Maybe when you're doing a puzzle, you're looking at what it's supposed to look like because that's the pattern. This is exactly what's going on here. The tabernacle reflected a pattern that pre-existed in heaven where God created a place for him to dwell. And that pattern, by the way, still exists. And all through scripture, All through scripture, we get glimpses of that heavenly pattern with the building of the tabernacle, the building of the temple, Ezekiel's vision of this ultimate temple to come. And of course, ultimately, what is that pattern? Well, the pattern is Christ. The pattern is his life, his death, his ministry that was to come. Everything is made according to that pattern. And we can unpack the many ways in which the tabernacle reflects the ministry, the work, and the character of Christ. So it's always built according to the pattern. And then finally, it is built by craftsmen guided by the Spirit. At the end of this section, God says, I've set apart Bezalel and I have filled him with my spirit with all kinds of skill and wisdom in order to build. Now I think, again, I I open by saying that this is a story about God taking them from slavery and meaningless toil to service to God. And there's this contrast here between the sort of meaningless, endless grind of labor that they gave to Pharaoh and the very meaningful work of building the tabernacle that they they engage in. God is saying, listen, I want to give you work. I, I want you to be, I want you to be with me, and I want to give you work that matters, that contributes to the building up of my house and to purposes that will last forever. And it requires all kinds of skill. Now, I want you to just consider all the ways in which, keep in mind, Bezalel was the director. He didn't do all this stuff. There's metalworking. There's carpentry. There's working in textiles. There's embroidery. There's perfumery. There's so many things that were required for the building of the tabernacle. All kinds of skill, all kinds of know-how, all kinds of wisdom, all kinds of craftsmanship. Imagine all the people willingly giving themselves to these tasks. And most importantly, notice that it's the spirit that gives them the skill to do this. Right? The spirit is crafty. He likes Hobby Lobby. All right. So what do we learn from all of this? What are we today to learn? Because we're not going to build a tabernacle. We're not going to build a temple, a physical temple. So what are we to learn from all of this? Let me suggest a number of things. First, of course, most importantly, Christ is the tabernacle. He's the place where God comes to dwell with mankind. In the beginning, the word took flesh and tabernacled among us. John chapter 1. Same word. He came and was the tent of God, the place where God dwelled in the earth. It is no coincidence that the Lord Jesus was a carpenter, a house builder, because he came to build a house. 
He knew how to work with wood. He knew how to work with stones. And he came to build the house that his father had always been wanting to be built. He says, tear down this temple and in three days I will rebuild it. Zeal for the house is what consumed the Lord. So Jesus is the temple, the place where heaven and earth meet, the place where God will dwell with people. He's the sacrifice that deals with human sin. And he is the priest that brings us into the Father's presence. We know that. But because we have faith in him, because we have entrusted our lives to him, guess what? We are the tabernacle. Our gatherings are places where God, the Father, through the Son, is building a habitation for his spirit. We sing one day, we sang it tonight, heaven and earth will meet, but the scripture teaches that every time his people gather in his name, heaven and earth meet. May the spirit open the eyes of our hearts to see that. Every time we gather and call upon his name and preach his word and come to his table, heaven and earth meet. May he raise our expectations for that gathering. He's still gathering materials for this house all the time. He's adding new people who are new materials that he is using and preparing and shaping and crafting to be a part of this house of living stones. We should constantly be thinking about how we can beautify the gathering of his people and the building of his house. And that beautification comes in all kinds of ways. Skills in singing, greeting one another, coming with a heart to think of how significant our times together are. We still work according to the pattern. We still build according to this pattern. Paul says this, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. We want to give this ourselves to this work according to the pattern, which is Christ at every step of the way and in every way. We offer ourselves for one another's faith, and this is what God is using to build up this house and con to continue this project. Everything we do in building his house matters, just like building the lampstand, building the curtains. Everything they did mattered to God, and everything we continue to do to build his house matters. Praying for one another. This is important work in building the house that he is building, practically serving one another. This is very important work in God's heart, in God's eyes for building the house, giving time and attention to one another. Paul speaks of the offerings of money that he's gathering from the Corinthian church for the poor believers in Jerusalem. He speaks of it this way. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work as it is written. He is distributed freely. He is given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Paul sees all that they do for one another as building the house that God is blessing and God blessing them with all the gifts they need to build it, putting up with one another. Paul said to the Philippians, 
Guys, I may die. I'm in prison. I may die. But you know what? If I die, it's as if my life is like a drink offering poured out on the sacrifice of your faith. And I'm satisfied. I'm happy because I've been given to meaningful work and it matters. This work that we do, that we give, that we participate in, in building up the house of God is meaningful craftsmanship. It is not meaningless toil. Sometimes we feel like the things we do don't matter. or Sometimes we get dissatisfied with our jobs. They seem pointless. But all that we do to build the house that he is building matters. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And again, the key to all of this is what I just read, is to do it willingly, with a cheerful heart, eagerly. Because we know that we're responding to a love that we can't imagine, and we're responding, we're giving ourselves to a work that will be beautiful forever. We should do it with a twinkle in our eye and a spring in our step, because God loves a cheerful giver. Amen? And finally, we know that one day God will complete this house. The project that he started in Eden that got thwarted by sin, that he began again through Moses and his descendants in the building of the tabernacle and the temple and ultimately the temple of his son and now the temple of his church that he is building everywhere throughout history and the earth will be completed. And one day we will hear this. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people And God himself will be with them as their God. May it be. Amen. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus.